Today on Death by Misadventure, we have a special guest who's an expert in all things spooky and the unexplained, Jeff Belanger. In addition to being a master storyteller, he's an active adventurer known for his ability to captivate audiences with his chilling tales of the paranormal. But that's not all. Jeff is also an award-winning, Emmy-nominated host, writer, and producer of the popular podcast and TV show, New England Legends, a series on PBS and Amazon Prime. With over a dozen books published in six languages, he's one of the most prolific researchers of folklore and legends today. Get ready to be transported to some of America's most haunted houses and ghostly encounters as Jeff shares his knowledge and expertise on all things paranormal. From ghost sightings to the unexplained mysteries, we'll be delving into the depths of the unknown. I'm your host, JC Nova, and this is Death by Misadventure. Jeff, what sparked your interest in exploring and sharing folklore and legends? I think I just was steeped in it. I, I grew up around it, you know, growing up where I did in an old New England town. We were just very matter of fact about our haunts. And I had a friend who lived down the street from me who lived in a house that was older than America. It was built in 1760. And it was haunted. And it wasn't like something scary. It wasn't like a, you know, Hollywood horror movie. It was just, yeah, this old guy lives with us. And I thought this was so intriguing. And I also grew up in the town next to Ed and Lorraine Warren. So they lived in Monroe, Connecticut. I lived in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. I remember seeing their library programs, you know, in the fall. And they were just very much regional celebrities back then. And they would share their their paranormal investigations and their evidence and their stories. And I thought, this is so intriguing, you know, the idea that people would actually go looking for ghosts. And now, of course, thanks to the Conjuring movies, those guys are a household name. So do you think in New England, people are more accepting of these paranormal activities and ghosts and all these wonderful stories that you cover on your podcast, Legends of New England? I've been all over the world, and I've been very fortunate to be able to travel throughout the United States and Europe, Africa, North America, South America. And it's interesting to me how different cultures treat their ghosts. And I'm stereotyping, and forgive me, I don't know another way but to paint with broad strokes here, but I think in New England, we're just a little more matter-of-fact about our hauntings. It doesn't have to be a big discussion about religion or belief or anything else. It's just, you know, yeah, that building's haunted. What are you going to do? Part of that is because we we have such a, a tradition of preserving our history here. You know, when you drive down some of our main streets, that's what it looked like 200 years ago, except, you know, just a few less Dunkin' Donuts back then. But, you know, it's it's the, the same town halls, the same homes. They've been preserved. And so this this idea of preserving our our physical history, I think, goes hand in hand with preserving our, our history history. And that includes our ghosts. That's so interesting. So you grew up basically in an environment where ghosts and folklore were readily accepted and everybody shared stories with each other. What is one of the first books that you wrote? And maybe if you can share which one is your favorite or maybe a favorite story from one of your books. So I started in all this by writing for newspapers way back in like the mid 1990s. And I love the Halloween feature. You know, you'd go look looking for like a local haunt and you'd talk to people about their ghost sightings. And 
that turned into a website I started in 1999 called ghostvillage.com. And then, you know, the website just grew. People started sharing their stories and encounters and, and it grew and grew. And then in 2004, my first book was called The World's Most Haunted Places. And that was about just looking at, at history and haunts all over the world and finding, you know, some similarities and of course, some disparities in the way people talk about their haunts. But, but the through line was definitely that, okay, you know, people die sometimes untimely, sometimes grisly deaths, and that leaves a mark and it gets people talking. And maybe just maybe there's something more to this that maybe we do go on or we do sort of hang around. It was such an adventure and it started my, my career really in the paranormal 20 plus years ago at this point. So from then, I mean, I've written 16 books now. So like to ask which one is a favorite is almost like asking a parent who your favorite child is. And while they do have one, they shouldn't say which one because it's rude, right? The ghost might get mad. That's right. Your kids, the <laughs> ghosts, the books, they all might get so mad at you. But yeah, no, you like them all for different reasons. But I've always sort of stuck in and around these weird topics because I just, I love them. It gives us the opportunity to talk about such big, big issues, right? So, you know, we're talking about the afterlife without all the dogmas of religion, right? If we wanted to talk about religion today, you'd get upset. Well, or I'd get up. One of us would get upset and we might fight, but we could talk about ghosts. It's just like this, the least common denominator of spirituality. And if you want to talk about, are we alone in the universe? You're talking about aliens and UFOs and you do it in a safe way. If you want to think it's just a story, I think the story still has value. I personally feel it's more than just a story. I think there's something to it. So one of your books is about the most haunted places in the United States. Can you, in your opinion, what are a few of the locations that that you find to be the most haunted and, and why, why you think they are? So th I have kind of a paranormal radar at this point. And the reason that some places make the radar higher on the list than others is because more people talk about ghost sightings. They come up again and again just a stone's throw from where you are, JC, you've got the Queen Mary, a ship I've been to, you know, many times there in Long Beach, California. You've got this, this storied old cruise liner, North Atlantic, you know, cruise liner that also served in World War II as a troop ship. And people have died on board. And it's, it's got all this history and these thin walls and it's metal and it's surrounded by salt water and so on. And it just keeps coming up again and again because people go there, they stay there, they have their own experiences and the legend just grows. But, you know, there's also, you know, the old prisons, the old hospitals, so many locations that we keep talking about because we can only imagine what it must have been like to be inside of them when they were open. It's funny that you mentioned the Queen Mary. When I moved back from San Francisco in 2019, there is an art deco building on Ocean Boulevard called The Swan which is a historical building. It's an old mansion and it has eight apartments. And I used to drive by the building all the time. And I was like, oh, that's such a beautiful building. So when I moved back, I was going to move into a different apartment, but the property manager insisted that I go look at this apartment in this building. And subsequently I ended up getting a one bedroom apartment there. And my view from my living room was of the Queen Mary what was so funny about the building is it was definitely haunted and the building had a history of people would move in there and then they would 
die. Oh, good. Basically. <laughs> no wonder the rent's so cheap. Hey, no, you've got to look at this place. Seriously. It just opened up this morning. Just step over so him. So I was like, I always had like weird vibes about the building. I ended up living there maybe six or seven months and then I ended up moving down the street. But the interesting thing <laughs> Wait, happened. wait, wait, hold on. So JC moves in and she's like, busts out the Ouija board. Should I move in? Yes. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Then that's, that's enough for me. Well, did you have anything happen? Don't bury the lead. What happened when you're in that apartment? A couple of interesting things happened. One, I've been working on this true crime series called Dragonfly about the unsolved murder of Brett Cantor. And I just started working on the case when I moved in. And I was like, oh, how am I going to get in touch with the original homicide detectives? And was really kind of perplexed on how to dig into the case. And like a month later, two police officers moved in next door to me. And one of them just happened to be a homicide detective who had just retired after 38 years. And he ended up working on the case with me. So if I hadn't have moved in the building, I never would have met him. But after about six months, I told him, I'm like, this building gives me the creeps. I got to get out of here. And there was a woman that lived above me, Darcy. And I know that she had moved in and the previous couple had moved out because the husband had died. And I told him, I said, I don't think Darcy's going to be around much longer. I move out. She died a few months later. And now you're a suspect. Now you're a suspect. Well done. <laughs> Pat told me a story. He was like outside because there's this big, beautiful park and this woman drove up and she was just standing outside the building. And he was like, you know, can I help you? And she said, oh, I used to live in this building. And she proceeded to tell him that people would move in the building and they would not die. Like they wouldn't be killed or murdered or anything grisly, but they would like die of cancer. Like it's like people come there to move on to the afterlife. Like she was saying how several people had moved into the building and they die and they move out. And she sadly had cancer and wanted to move back in the building before she passed. It was really weird. It's a very weird, beautiful, but haunted building. And even that whole area where you can see the Queen Mary it definitely has kind of a strange vibe to it because people come to the park, they have yoga there, they have people that come and hang out, but everybody kind of seems otherworldly, if that's... Yeah, I get it. It, it attracts an eclectic group of people, so it, I definitely feel like it's haunted. Yeah, no, that's cool. And, and you know what? Sometimes that's what it is, is it's a feeling. And feelings aren't science, I know. Like, I wish I wish we could put that at feelings in a jar and say, hey, this is what love looks like and this is what humor looks like and fear and, and everything else. But the, the reality is that, you know, you walk into one building and it feels fine. You feel nothing at all. You're comfortable. You do your thing. You walk into another place, you're uncomfortable. And you're not in any danger. No one's like lurking or anything like that. You just feel uncomfortable. And I think at the end of the day, we're, we're animals. We have the ability to sort of sense what's around us or what has been around us because that's how we survive. So do you believe, and maybe you can explain your theory on why some buildings are haunted and others aren't. And do you feel like if someone passes away, does their energy stay with the home that they lived in? Let me start by saying I have no idea. I used to think I knew, but the longer I've done this, the less I know. But dying in a place is not a rule. 
that is now haunted and places where people have never died can be haunted, you know? So in some instances, what we're looking at is that there's always a human connection to locations, people who work there, people who died there, live there, pass through, whatever. We all leave a little bit of our energy and, and think about just your normal day. You know, maybe you go to a coffee shop and you leave a little bit of your energy there. Are you in a good mood and you're pleasant and you're like, oh, hey, there's my favorite barista and it's nice to see you today. And you exchange some pleasant exchange and you get your coffee and off you go. And then, you know, you sit on a bench and, and everywhere you go, you're leaving some bit of your essence, the way you interact with people around you and so on. Where you live, you're leaving a lot of it. You're going through all the emotions of a, of a building, celebrating happy things and sobbing over sad things and all that stuff. And so when you walk into a place, I think sometimes we sort of pick up on what's been there before. It's called empathy, like just basic human empathy. If you walk into a room and you see a living person crying in the corner, like, I don't know, my instinct is to go over and say, are you okay? Is there something I can help you with? Is What's wrong? That's just me picking up on the emotion of the room because someone is upset. If someone's angry. Like you ever walk into a like an apartment or a home where a couple that's romantically involved with each other just had a big argument and you're like, my goodness, it's cold in here. <laughs> you know, you're like, <laughs> like yeah. it's a uh, summer, but I didn't bring my winter coat. You just feel that. And that's, that's the energy of the room that's based on the people living there. So I think in some cases we walk into a place and we are literally imagining who's been there. And, and in a way we summon them, we pull them, you know, from wherever they are to wherever we are. And whether that's just an impression, like a movie that plays over and over, or, or we're literally sort of calling upon the place memory of that person, I'm not sure. But for some reason, some locations have a haunted reputation and the building right next door that could be just as old or even older does not. And, and how do you explain that? Except that, you know, there are ghosts and hauntings. Hmm, that's so fascinating. I've definitely, over the years, been in certain buildings that have, I guess, what I would describe as like dark energy, especially when you're moving into a place, you're like, oh, this place feels good. And you go into another home and you're like, wow, this doesn't, something happened here. That's exactly the point. So, and, and anyone who's ever been house hunting, apartment hunting, whatever it is, you walk into one place, you see three or four places in a day. And one of them, you're really uncomfortable. You rent that place at your peril, right? Like, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Listen to you, right? Listen to that inner voice. Like, you don't know why you're uncomfortable. The neighborhood's good. Everything seems fine. It's, it's, it's freshly painted, whatever. But you've got that feeling. And I say, listen to those feelings. And in another place, you go, oh, this feels great. I could see my couch there. This feels like I, it could be my home. Then that's probably what you should go with. What's your take on the Amityville Horror House? So I have a strange relationship with that house. I first met it, <laughs> if one can meet a house, back when I was in college, because I went to school on Long Island. I went to Hofstra University, which is not too far from Amityville. And you know, you're, you're a freshman, you're making new friends, and someone's like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, oh, you know, I lived in Connecticut, and oh, I'm from Amityville. And I go, really? And they said, yeah, you want to go see the house? And I said, yes, I really want to go see the house. And so he took me down Ocean Avenue, and, and there it is. There's that house. That was the first time. Now, in the second book I ever wrote, a book called Our Haunted Lives, I had the opportunity to, it was a book of interviews, and this was an extensive interview I did with George Lutz. And George Lutz was the guy who lived in the Amityville house. Like All the movies, all the books, all the stories 
are based on his experiences with his family, you know, back in the 1970s. What was so captivating is that I had read Jay Anson's book, The Amityville Horror. That's the book that started it all. And what George described to me, the book was an exaggeration. The movies were a gross exaggeration. Yet you have to understand six people were indeed murdered inside that house. You know, the DeFeo murders happened. It's not a legend. It's not a story. It's not folklore. It's a fact. The murders were done by the brother slash son who went into the house in the middle of the night and executed his two parents and all of his brothers and sisters in their beds, which is weird, right? I mean, okay, mom and dad were first. Sure, they didn't see it coming. But when you hear gunshots in your house, you don't get up and everyone's found dead in their beds. Such a strange case. And that house sat empty for a long time. And George and his new wife, Kathy, decided, hey, houses don't have memories. That's his quote, not mine. They knew what they were buying and they moved in and stayed 28 days and had so many weird things happen that they were too scared to go back and left all their stuff and moved out to San Diego after that and then sold the rights to their story, and it's been told and retold ever since. And to this day, I was in Long Island you know, five, six, seven years ago, and you, you could drive by that house anytime. It doesn't have to be October or Halloween. You can go there in June on a sunny Saturday. There will be cars stopped in front of the house, and there will be neighbors yelling at you to move along. I mean, all these years later. That's fascinating. So what was your opinion of George Letts, did you find him, his story to be authentic? I'm just curious what your vibe was. Yeah, totally. I mean, so for example, do you remember like in the story, like the, the swarm of flies in one of the rooms, right? Yeah. I think that's sort of iconic. I said, well, tell me about the flies. Cause like, if I walk into a room in my house, by the way, no one's ever been murdered or died in my house. But like, if I walked into a room and there's full of flies, like I'm out until the exterminator has taken care of this thoroughly, right? I'm getting a hotel. That's just gross. And he said, oh yeah. So we had this one room and there was always a fly or two in it. You'd swat the fly, you'd kill it, you'd throw it away with a tissue or whatever. And he's like, and then an hour or two later, there's another fly in the room. And that doesn't make a horror movie, right? That's not going to have people jumping out of their seats. But imagine if you live there and you go into a room and there's one fly and you kill it. And then you go back and there's another fly and you kill that one. And this goes on for days and days and days, and you can't find the source. There's no dead mouse. It's, you know, whatever. Everything he described, it was a lot more subtle. For example, his first night in the house, he said, you know, he's lying in bed and he hears what sounds like a marching band tuning up, like starting to play downstairs. And he's like, oh, did I leave a radio on? What's going on? He wakes up, he starts to walk down his stairs, and then he sees his black lab dog sleeping at the bottom of the stairs, sound asleep. And now he's like, oh no. Right. I mean, if there was really a sound, radio or otherwise, that dog would be awake, right? The dog would be up, but the dog's asleep. And now he's thinking, oh no, this is in my head. Is something wrong with me? No one else heard it. And it's little stuff like that that starts to chip away at your sanity. Any one of those things is not a big deal, but add them up and compound them over days and weeks. And suddenly you're just uncomfortable all the time where you live. And oh yeah, six people were murdered here. And you're sort of reminded of that as you walk around the old bedrooms and stuff. I did find him believable. And I, I've even interviewed his stepson years later. We've, we've hung out and he talked about, you know, yeah, that house was weird and it's affected his whole life. So I did find him believable, but I think the movies shouldn't be looked at as a documentary. That's interesting. That's going back to when I was sharing with you about the Long Beach apartment I lived in. I had a sense living there that if I stayed longer, that something would happen to me. 
And that particular apartment that I lived in, people would move in, stay six months and just move out. I think that most people have had experiences where they've lived somewhere and it's just like, oh, I don't feel comfortable here. It could be the neighborhood. It could be a roommate. It could be anything. But I definitely feel strongly about like houses have memories and have energy. And that, like you said, your advice is if it doesn't feel good, then just don't move in. So you, you felt like something would happen to you if you stay long enough. So Pat, he's a homicide detective. So he would like kind of scoff at me because we didn't know each other very well at the time. And I said, no, I'm like, I kept telling him, I said, I think something's going to happen to Darcy. I I just don't think she's going to be around much longer. And I said, there's something weird about this apartment building. And there was a situation where the neighbors upstairs, something happened, like they basically broke their toilet and it came down into my apartment. Now this building is like from the 1900s and it's like all the original art deco work. The landlord didn't come in to fix it for me, like to clean things up for like four days. And so literally I went down the street, I saw apartment that I liked and I said, I'll take it. And I just told him, I said, I can't stay here anymore. There's something weird in this building and now the pipes broke and I'm like, I got to get out of here. So I move And someone else moves in. And then sadly, Darcy passed away like four months later. And then Pat said to me, he said, you know, I I think you're right. There is something very strange about this building and people that move in and out. I think even Long Beach as a city, there are definitely a lot of, I feel like a lot of haunted places in that city. It has a certain vibe or energy to it. So, you know, here's the thing. Ghost stories, hauntings, haunts, all occur where there are people. <laughs> like that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a, true. It is a necessary <laughs> ingredient in the recipe, right? <laughs> is that people had to have been there to sort of leave a piece of themselves behind. And cities have more people than rural areas. And while cities might be way more haunted, they're also way more noisy. So if you walk down the street and you hear voices, your assumption is not that they're ghosts. Your assumption is that, well, someone's yelling somewhere and I'm hearing it through the building, through a window, whatever, you know, walking down an alley nearby. So I have no doubt that the cities probably have more haunts than than they do out in the remote country and, and abandoned cabins in the woods. The difference is that it's just not quite so noisy when you're out there in the woods. And if you hear voices and no one's around, well, then you got to look over your shoulder. What about ghostly encounters in like historic places like the White House and and historic buildings? Can you share any stories from that? Yeah. So I had the opportunity. I wrote a children's book about the ghost of the White House and I called the White House (laughs) and I just said, hey, I just called the main number because I'm not that well connected, to be honest. But I I called the main number and said, I want to do a book about the ghost of the White House. And they said, well, hold on, please. And I went, oh, all right. And, and I was talking to the boss in like a minute. The boss is the chief usher, not the president. The chief usher is the person that has about 100 employees reporting to them. The butlers, the cleaning crew, the groundskeepers, uh, folks that have worked there for years and years, doesn't matter which political party's in power. And these folks have ghost stories. And, and they're also, I mean, as witnesses go, they are airtight witnesses, right? The credibility is through the roof. Now, presidents have talked about seeing ghosts and and hauntings. You know, Harry S. Truman wrote in letters to his wife that he heard footsteps upstairs when he was alone. And uh, to quote the president, sure as shooting, the place is haunted. 
But with our presidents, we don't psychologically evaluate them. We don't drug test them. We don't background check them. Nothing, right? They could be crazy and on drugs. But if you're a butler, if you're a foreman, if you're a cleaning crew or groundskeeper, you are drug tested, psych screened, you know, uh, background checked eight ways to Sunday because you're around the president and first family and foreign heads of state. And when they say they've seen a ghost, well, shoot, you're not going to find a better witness. And nothing happens in that building that isn't checked and double checked. And I, I had the chance to go there. It was amazing, you know, walk around and interview some of the staff. And when you stand under the North Portico and, and you realize every single US president stood where I'm standing right now, all of them. I mean, I know Washington died before it was complete, but I mean, he laid the cornerstone. He was there. You feel the the gravitas of that, you know, that decisions have been made in this building that have literally changed the world. You feel all that. And there is a, a, a direct connection. Lincoln's ghost comes up again and again in the White House. And if you think about it, of all the U.S. presidents, Lincoln's was hands down the most difficult presidency. And there's not even a close second. You know, I mean, uh, his nation's at war with itself. His son died in the White House during his first term you know, of an illness. He paid the ultimate price. He was assassinated for, for the office. So if you are a U.S. president ever since Lincoln, no matter how bad your day is going, his was worse. And I think those presidents have sort of kept the spirit of him around for comfort, right? I mean, I, I need you. I, I need you, Lincoln, to show me how bad it can be and that I can get through this thing that I'm, get, I'm working on right now. Hmm, that's fascinating. I know in one of your stories, you shared your first encounter with a ghost. I believe it was in Paris. Yeah. Can you talk about that? It was 2003, and I'd already been writing about ghosts for like six years at that point. But as a very much as a journalist, if someone said they saw a ghost, I would say, all right, well, I believe that you believe. I don't think you're lying to me. But I was in Paris, and I had a day to myself. I was there for working and a whole other life and job. And I had a day to myself, and some of my colleagues are like, oh, we're going to go to the Louvre. And I'm like, yeah, I'll catch up with you later. I'm going underground. <laughs> and so uh, I got to go down into the catacombs which is this network of tunnels. Paris is amazing. I mean, the, the history goes back almost 2,000 years to when it was a Roman outpost. And it just grew and grew, and there's all this great limestone. And eventually, to get to the limestone, they had to start tunneling under the buildings. And by the, the mid-1700s and on into the 1800s, those buildings were getting denser and taller and heavier. And the cemeteries, which were initially on the outskirts, were now encircled, right? The outskirts had sprawled out. And they had two big problems. The cemeteries were overflowing with corpses and the buildings were starting to collapse in the hollow ground underneath. And so they made the decision to empty the cemeteries and move all those bones down below. And so I went down there and I'm walking through this network of tunnels and there's like French graffiti from the underground during World War II and, and you know, you're making lefts and rights and, and I'm down there alone. And finally, I come to this doorway that says in French, you know, stop, this is the empire of the dead. And when I walked through, there was just millions of human skeletons all around me in this very macabre and intricate pattern. I mean, like retaining walls of bones. And it takes your breath away. And my last name, Belanger, right? I mean, it's Belanger over there. You know, it's, it's a French name. And I mean, I'm a mutt at this point. There's been, you know, so many different nations in my, my past. But I was thinking about it. I'm like, my DNA is down here somewhere, right? There's a strand <laughs> in one of these bones. But as I'm walking down this long hallway that was, I mean, if I put my, my hands out in either direction, my fingertips would be touching human skulls on either side. And I suddenly see this, this 
shadow the size of a man come out from the right side and go to the left and then back again. And I just froze and I went, okay, wait a minute, I'm alone. And no one came from behind me. They would have bumped into me. And I, I thought of everything it could possibly be. Is there a little side tunnel up there? And nope, it's just this long straightaway to the end. And in that moment, I said, if that's not a ghost, I don't have another word for what it is that I saw. And it's one of those experiences that takes, you know, hours, days, weeks, months to fully sink in. And I had interviewed hundreds of people about their ghost experiences before that moment. And I went, oh, this is what they were talking about. The, the analogy I like to use, JC, is like a lightning strike. You know, you know, lightning strikes the earth like hundreds of times a day all over the planet. However, not usually right next to where we're standing. If lightning does strike the ground right next to where you're standing, you will never, ever forget it. And I feel like that's what happened to me in the underground of Paris. Do you think it changed you at all after having that experience? Totally. I was this objective reporter that was just like, oh, both sides of the story. You know, I'll let people decide for themselves. I don't know. I lost some objectivity that day. I said, oh, I think I'm a believer. I had this experience now. I'm more inclined to err on the side of believing, I think, than I was before that. So do you think there are certain factors where some people are able to see ghosts and others aren't? I've read some articles about how children are able to see ghosts sometimes more than adults. And I don't know necessarily if any of that's true, but what what has your experience been? Yeah, some people are just more sensitive to it and some are are not. Some people, they don't see or feel anything and, and want to, by the way. I've met people that are like, there's nothing I would love more than to see a ghost, but I never have. I'm like, I get it. If, if I knew where they would be and when, I would buy that place and charge you an arm and a leg to see it. Trust me, but I don't. So I can't promise you where they will be or anything else. But it's one of those things where some people are just shut off to it and others are not. Yes, children haven't been taught yet that there's no such thing as ghosts or whatever. And so they just say, hey, I, I see this old woman in the corner waving to me. You know, what does that mean? And you just shrug and go, I don't see what you see. So uh, also animals. I mean, think about your dog or cat looking in the corner intently and like barking at something. And you're looking in the corner going, there's nothing there, Fido. Like, what's up? <laughs> you know, what are you looking at? And I've been with people. I've been in groups. We were in Waverly Hills Sanatorium, this old abandoned sanatorium where hundreds of people had died from tuberculosis over the years that it was open. Big, creepy, abandoned uh, throughout and the guy next to me is like, I see a man standing by that door over there. And I'm like, where? You know, he's like, see down there, you know, like the, the 10th door down on the left. I'm like, okay, I see it. He's, he's leaning against the wall and I, I don't see it. I, I'm going to walk. I will walk right. You tell me to stop when I'm next to him. And he said, okay, go. And I walked and he said, stop, you're next to him right now. And I didn't see it. And I'm not calling this guy a liar. He was of sound mind and body and everything else. However, maybe that message wasn't for me. It was for him. And he was seeing something and I wasn't. But that sort of puts us at an impasse, right? I can't promise you he was right and I can't promise you I was right. But there we were. I can't remember the name of the building, but it used to be an office building in Boston. It was used to be, I believe, a mental hospital. Then they turned it into a office building, which I actually was at for a meeting. And then they eventually turned it into condos. And I'm like, how can you turn a mental hospital into condos? It just seems like from an energy perspective and kind of sad at the same time. 
I guess people could look at it too, like you're taking something that that might have been sad and and turn it into something more more positive. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Where buildings are repurposed that might have had. Uh, a tragic history. Well, so uh, you might be talking about uh, the former Danvers Asylum. I think that's it. Yes, nah. that's it. So Danvers Asylum, it's north of Boston. That's actually where where the Salem witch trials took place. Not those exact grounds, but the that town. Anyway, so interesting story. There were all these asylums, and Danvers was one of many. And there there are these huge, beautiful, sprawling campus buildings that really changed the way we we deal with people with mental disabilities and, and physical disabilities and things like that back in the mid-1800s, Kirkbride buildings. Then they got overcrowded, they got underfunded, and then the deinstitutionalization hit in the 1980s and all those places got shut down. You know, where those people went, some of them are our homeless population, some of them are our prison population, and I guess some of them could be treated with medication or, or private but I think that's one of the biggest tragedies that's ever befallen our country is to not take care of the people that need it the most. However, Danvers. So Danvers shuts down, as so many did. It sits abandoned. It's full of asbestos. However, Boston real estate is so prime. It's incredibly expensive up here. We can rival the, the greater LA area, I promise. I think the most expensive parking space in the United States sold in Boston. It was like $210,000 or something for parking space. So uh, real estate is prime. Before they repurposed that building for condos, they filmed a movie there called Session 9. And if you're into horror movies that are a little bit beyond the mainstream, it's a pretty darn good horror movie. And apparently the crew experienced all kinds of weird things when they were filming it. But now it is condos. <laughs> I was giving a talk once up there and I said, yeah, you know, they, they turned that, that building into condos and it's, it's been haunted forever. And someone sheepishly raised their hand and said, I live in one of those condos. <laughs> oh. I, I said, how's that going? Did they share any stories? They didn't have any stories, but they said, you know, I'm going to be looking over my shoulder now. A good friend of mine just moved into an apartment where the former tenant took his own life. And she's like, okay, ghost guy, what do I do? I know this happened. I know it happened somewhat recently. And I said, well, you've got to decide if that's going to freak you out. She's like, do I learn about his name? Do I learn about him? I'm like, I wouldn't because that's a connection. I would just say that that was your time and your time is over and now this is my time. And once we start to fixate and focus, I think we sort of draw in what's around us. So that person was probably blissfully living unaware in the former Danvers Asylum and I screwed it up for them. So I apologize. <laughs> Wow. That's an incredible story. Can you tell me more about your podcast, Legends of New England, and kind of how it got started and talk about some of the stories, interesting ghost stories out of New England that you can share? Yeah. So uh, New England Legends actually started as a TV series on PBS way back in 2013. Filming a TV show is very expensive and time consuming and you need permits and insurance and all kinds of stuff. And we're like, there's so many stories and, and how do we cover them? And then I really wanted to get into podcasting. And I thought, you know, the idea of like a documentary podcast was so intriguing to me because suddenly all the limitations of television were removed. Limitations of things like, you know, permits and, and recreations and film crews and all, the, all those expenses. We could just tell the stories. And so, I was, oh gosh, five and a half years ago, we started the podcast. And the challenge was, can we do this every week? So there's New England Legends, the TV series, and then the podcast where we're just going to cover some weird story from, from the region 
every week and we haven't missed a week in 290 weeks now. It's been awesome. And what's great too is that our audience has really taken the reins on sharing stories with us. So it's it's like crowdsourced, which is really cool. You know, so people are like, hey, I live in this little town in Maine. And have you heard about, you know, this weird monster in the woods? And we go, no, what's that? And and then there's our next story. So it's been it's been really cool. So we cover ghosts, hauntings, roadside oddities, UFOs, aliens, uh, Bigfoot, lake monsters, you know, all the strangeness that gets whispered about around campfires. I was intrigued by your story about Vermont's abandoned UFO base, which I had never heard of. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So that was a recent one. There's this base in, it's called the North Concord Air Force Station, and it's on East Mountain in Vermont. It's You're, you're literally about 25 miles from the Canadian border. It's that, that far up there. And back in the 1960s, something like 175 men were stationed here because it was a radar base. The only job was to watch the radar screen for nukes coming from Russia. All day, all night, 24-7, 365, someone had to just be sitting there watching the radar to make sure. And, and if nukes were coming, you know, you had, what, 15, 20 minutes to call the president, <laughs> order a counter-strike, and end the world. So you can only imagine how mundane that life must be. Because not to spoil the story, but no nukes were launched <laughs> during that time. So their job is to just watch the sky and watch the radar. And then there was this particular night when suddenly they see this thing. It was uh, September 19th, 1961, when they see this, this strange thing in the sky, this strange light. And they watched it for like 18 minutes and they reported it. They're like, look, it doesn't seem to be a threat or anything, but it's unidentified and we're not sure what it is. And so they reported it. And then after 18 minutes, it just sort of faded away and it was gone. Eventually, we started using satellites in space to look for nuke launches. And we didn't need facilities like this anymore. So it was only in operation like five or six years and it shut down. So it's it sat abandoned ever since. But the reason that UFO sighting is so, so, so significant is because a few hours later, just over the border in New Hampshire, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO abduction case, which became worldwide news, occurred. And so it's believed that they saw this craft or whatever it was just hours before the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill, which has been turned into books and movies and documentaries and, and, and so on, you know, in New Hampshire, it's, it's one of the most famous UFO abduction cases ever. And it's dates all the way back to 1961 and apparently started in Vermont. That's fascinating. What about any, have you explored any ghost stories related to the Salem witch trials? Oh yeah, sure. So uh, it's tough to avoid up here, you know, that the Salem witch trials are so relevant because witch trials, of course, continue all the time. They happen in national politics. They happen in local politics. They happen in your, your school board meetings, your, <laughs> you know, your, your social clubs and whatever. I think it's why we, we keep that story alive because th that's how bad it can get. It can get to the point of, I don't just disagree with you, but I want to destroy you. I want to just cast some accusation at you that you can't defend and, and ruin you physically, emotionally, and in all other ways. So the Salem witch trial sort of permeates the whole north of Boston area. There's a place called the Witch House, which was where one of the judges from the trial once lived. And we filmed an episode of Ghost Adventures in there way back when. That's a place that is active. Number one, you step in there and it looks like you're stepping back into the late 1600s, early 1700s. I mean, it's a museum now, so there's the decor and everything else. It just has that 
that feel that you're back there. And I think that plays a part in, in this kind of stuff. You know, you, you, it looks the part you're in the place where this thing happened and you connect to it and the judge is buried right up the hill in burial Hill, you know, in, in Salem. So, and there's multiple memorials, of course, to the witch trials in town. You just kind of can't get away from it in Salem. The, the police cars drive by and there's a witch riding a broomstick on the side of the door. That's their logo. You know, yeah, like, like it's, it's everywhere. Well, what was her name? The from Bewitched, Samantha from Bewitched has a bronze statue in town. There's the witch museum and so on and so on. It's witch everything. And that story continues to haunt us no matter what, because it's still relevant. Right. And, and because so many innocent people were executed, hundreds more were jailed over gossip, over a lie, over an, a false accusation. And I think this is a story that should never go away, a ghost that should haunt us forever because it serves us in that way to warn us. Like, it's just, it's not okay. It's not okay to do these horrible, evil things. You know, gossip is evil and then these accusations are evil and, and spectral evidence. My goodness. And, and here's the crazy thing. Vladimir Putin from Russia announced, it was a couple months ago in a speech, he said, everyone in the West are Satanists. We're Satanists. How, <laughs> how do you defend that? How do I say to you, JC, you're a, you're a Satanist and you say, no, I'm not. And I say, well, that's exactly what a Satanist would say. We're at this impasse. It's still happening. We've learned nothing from 1692. Political parties, oh, they're, they're, they're Satanists. They're evil. How do you defend someone accusing you of being evil? How? how? You can't, you, you can just say, no, I'm not. How, prove it. Well, disprove it. I can't disprove it. No more than you can prove it. We use these horrible labels because it strikes at something really primal within us. We're afraid of evil. What can you do with evil? You, you just kill it. That's all you could do with evil. You can't negotiate with evil. You kill evil. Satanists, they're, they're, they're the opposer. They're against God. They're against everything that is righteous and good. So they must be the enemy. And Salem, by the way, is home to the uh, Satanic Temple, which is the largest group of atheists that I'm aware of, <laughs> which is the irony. I think too, with social media, now they can fuel the stories and misinformation. I know when I'm investigating true crimes and cold cases and you're researching your stories, I like to, which I found on Ancestry.com, they have like, I believe, newspapers.com. So you can go back and search old news articles to see what the story was at the time when the incident happened versus what is the story now. I always find it fascinating on how conspiracy theories, stories kind of flourish and people share them and sometimes they embellish them or facts about a story or a case evolves. But of course, if it's a ghost story, it's really based on that person's individual experience and maybe ghostly encounters. Do you think that ghosts interact with different people in different ways? I mean, for however many people there are, there's as many ghost stories, you know, and and what happens with the retelling, I get it. It's the telephone game. When we were in kindergarten, you know, someone whispers a sentence to you and you, you whisper it to the next kid, to the next kid, to the next kid. And by the time it gets around, it, it's changed quite a bit. There's some elements that probably carried all the way through, the important elements. And in folklore, folklore is a telephone game to our past. And folklore works the same today as it did 200 years ago. It's just way faster today. You know, so, so 200 years ago, I'd have some strange experience and I might tell you the next time I see you, you know, in town, 
And then you might tell someone else and it would take weeks and months and years before the story starts to get around. And if you're intrigued enough by the story, you want to go there. If I say, well, I was by this old pond and I saw a ghost of the girl that drowned there three years ago, you might say, you know what? Today's a slow day. Let's go to the pond and see if we see the ghost. And maybe you do. And you have another story to tell. Now today it works the same, except I post it on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and it gets shared and reshared and liked and, and retweeted and so on. And so what used to take years could happen in a matter of just a couple of hours, but the process is the same. You found the story believable enough to share it and maybe even want to go there and become part of the story because that's what this is about, right? You, you hear something and you're like, I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in aliens, but you say a UFO landed right over there. Well, I'm at least going to go look. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna be, I want to check it out. You know, when I was a kid, a buddy of mine lived right across the street from a cemetery and there was this above ground rectangular crypt, the only one in like this vast, most of them are just regular headstones, but there was this one crypt. And he said, that's the witch's grave. And if you knock on it three times at midnight, the, the witch jumps out and we're having a sleepover and it's like 1150. And we're like looking across the street at the cemetery and we're like, should we go try it? We should, we should, yeah, we should try. Of course. Yeah. So 1155, 1159, we're over there. We're walking up to the rectangular crypt in the middle of the cemetery. And then we're watching our, our clocks, right? Midnight, knock, knock, knock. And here's the thing. The witch may have jumped out. Totally possible. I have no way of knowing because we were out of there so fast. Like as soon as we knocked three times, we were sprinting at full speed back to his house, diving through the door, you know, laughing at ourselves. And the witch could be back there right now going, I'm here. What the heck? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Look at me. yeah, like, dude, you knocked and, and here I am. But we don't know. I don't know. So I, that's totally inconclusive. Because that's the, like Bloody Mary, right? You hold up a candle in front of the mirror and you say Bloody Mary three times or 10 times or whatever. Here's everybody's homework. You have a candle, you have a mirror, try it. But do it when you're alone. When you're all alone in your home, when no one else is there, roommates or spouses or partners or whatever. When you're alone, say it, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. And be honest with yourself. Right before you say it that third time, is there some little piece of you that goes, oh, crap, what if? Right? What if this, this ghost jumps out of the mirror when I say it the third time because I just summoned something that I'm not prepared to deal with? And you just blow the candle out and you go, this is stupid. This is, this is dumb. There's no such thing. <laughs> and that makes you feel better. But that little bit of doubt, that's where ghosts live. Yes, your imagination can run run wild. I haven't had an opportunity to watch it yet, but you did a mini TV series about the spirits of serial killers. Yeah, that which was just sounds super creepy. <laughs> yeah, that was for Ghost Adventures. We did a, a four part mini series on, um, you know, it was John Wayne Gacy, and oh god, it's, it was a few years ago now. That was some of the hardest work I ever did because we did Dahmer. You spend all day in a really dark place. And I was uh, reminded of the, the Nietzsche quote, right? Gaze long into the abyss, the abyss gazes back. And it's so true. At the time, my daughter was like six years old and I would be working on this stuff like all day long. And you can't shower it off. When you read about and you're, you're studying the evil that some of these people perpetrated on victims, you can't shower that clean. And I remember my daughter, I was like, can we just sit down and color in your coloring book? for a little while, you know, that, that seemed to be the only thing that helped me 
because you go to such a dark place, right? The, the darkest of humanity. So I said before, I think empathy is what connects us to, to ghosts and spirits, just like seeing the person crying in, in the corner. Psychopaths lack empathy. They don't have it. They'd see someone crying in the corner and it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It means nothing. And that's, to me, that's the most frightening monster of all, right? There's no monster that lurks out there worse than someone who has no empathy. That is so frightening. And that's the darkest place that humanity can go. And that will forever haunt us because we know uh, serial killers are not finished. There'll be more and they'll come around again and they hunt their own. That's the worst part, right? They hunt their own. So the person that blends in, that looks just like one of your neighbors or just the people you see at the grocery store every week, that's the serial killer. It's never the one that sticks out (laughs) because they wouldn't get away with it. It's so frightening. So frightening. Yeah. Is there one of the serial killer ghosts that you covered that you found the most creepy or did you find like a common denominator between each story or were each one different? Yeah. So the common denominator was the lack of empathy. They wanted to do this thing that they had an MO for for how they do it. Like, Like Ted Bundy. I remember interviewing Ted Bundy's attorney and he's like, my secretary went on a date with him. You know, like, cause he was so charming and so good looking and, and she was just enamored by him. And we, we, at the time, they didn't think he had done anything yet. So she went out with him and she didn't get killed, which by the way, of course she didn't get killed because everyone knew they were going on a date. That's not how he worked. He would put on a cast on his hand and find a girl outside of a high school and say, I'm so sorry. Can, my car is right over there with this hand. I can't open the car door. Can you just open the car door for me, please? And, and I'll be on my way if you wouldn't mind. Who would say no to that? You know what I mean? And you go over and you're, it's just the two of you now and you open the car door for him and bam, he hits you with the cast. You're in the car and you're going to die. The way he would prey on people and you're like, I would fall for that. And I'm not stupid, right? I mean, I pay attention and I read about this stuff. And if someone said, I, I need your help, my God, preying on, on basic human kindness to me is, is, is the most evil thing I've, I think I've ever heard. God, stuff like that just just sort of haunts you. So like, you know, where these abductions took place sometimes get haunted reputations. Gacy's former house, which has been torn down. It's it's an empty lot now outside of Chicago. But the grounds are haunted. That's people were buried there under the house, you know, under the house. Incredible. Yeah, I can't even watch like they did the Jeffrey Dahmer movie on Netflix. I couldn't I couldn't watch it. I guess like you 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 were saying it's a feeling. It's that empathy you feel the victim's pain, you feel the family's pain and and you feel or sense the evil of that person. And it's just really, really frightening. Are there any stories that you're working on now or new projects that you're excited about? Obviously you've been writing for Ghost Adventures for 15 years. And so you you <laughs> live with spirits yeah. all day long. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's my full-time job. So yeah, I'm working on a, a neat new international show that's going to air this fall. Can't uh Actually, I, I I would tell you the title if we knew it, but it's not decided yet, but it's it's going to be about international hauntings. This fall, I also have a, a new book coming out, which I'm super excited about. Because if I were to say, JC, what's the most frightening holiday of the year? You would say, go. What's the most frightening holiday yeah. of the year? Say it. First thing comes um, to mind. Halloween. Right. Of course. Um. Of course. <laughs> and, and by the way, uh, that's what I think 99.9% of people would say, Halloween. Well, I'm here to tell you that is the second most frightening holiday by a, a, a long shot. The first is Christmas. 
Halloween, the veil is thin. Ghosts come into our world, and I get it. Ghosts scare some people. Christmas, though, my goodness, there are monsters that could kill you. Your life is in peril. And it's all about the the winter solstice and Saturnalia and Yule, and there's Krampus and Belschnickel and the Grilla and all these creatures that come from the dark, cold, long winter nights, dangerous nights, and they're coming to hunt us. So I've got this book coming out called The Fright Before Christmas, which explores all the legend and lore of all the monsters that have been around for, you know, longer than, way longer than Santa. And it's just such a, a cool ex- examination of this holiday and how we got here. You know, things like, you know, when you put garland up on your tree, what you're really doing is carrying on a tradition that dates back to Yule when they would look out at the frozen landscape and see that winter kills everything. It kills the flowers and the trees and the, the ponds freeze over and they're solid. But there was one tree that winter couldn't kill and it's the evergreen. So the evergreen must be more powerful than even winter. And so when they had their kills, they would pull the entrails out of elk and deer and they would drape them around the tree as an offering to this powerful and sacred plant. And when we put up garland on our Christmas tree, popcorn and cranberries and so on, <laughs> we're sort of reenacting this ancient rite. <laughs> and I say, if you want to- There's wanna, a darker story behind there's it. There's a much darker story. <laughs> so anyway, if you want to have a traditional Christmas this year, use real entrails on your Christmas tree. The smell will be absolutely awful. But when people walk in and go, what is that terrible stench? You'll tell them that's the smell of an authentic Christmas. Read Jeff's book, The Fright Before Christmas. You'll know all about it. So Jeff, my last question is, what advice would you give to those listening that might be interested in ghost hunting or exploring the paranormal? Uh, They're probably already doing it. (laughs) You know, I mean, if if you have any interest in it, it's, uh, you're doing it. If you're watching the shows, you're doing it. You're an armchair explorer and that's okay. If you're reading the books or the blogs or listening to the podcast about it, all good. The next step though, is to become part of the story in a more active way. And I love that. I love that I've been able to see the world through its legends and lore. And it's a way to immediately get below the surface. You're not a tourist when people start sharing these stories with you because they're personal. And when someone shares one of these, an encounter with you, what they're saying is, I trust you. You know, we're not talking about the weather or or sports or anything like that. We're talking about profound human experiences. And so, you know, open mind, open heart, go in and, and become part of those stories. If you've heard something, you're like, okay, I heard that building in town is haunted. I don't know if I believe in ghosts, but boy, the, the stories persist. Go, go for yourself. Ask questions. Can I come in? Can I ask around? I heard it's haunted. What if someone looks you in the eye and says, look, I don't believe in ghosts, but I saw Charlie walk out from the basement and disappear. And Charlie died 10 years ago. I used to work with him. You know, and you go, oh, <laughs> maybe there's more to it than just a story. And then you share it. And something magical happens when we share these stories. We connect. We connect with uh, you know, where we are, with our past, with our towns, our communities, and with each other in a way that sort of bonds us so differently than any other discussion that I'm aware of. So I am an advocate for finding these stories and sharing them. It's so fascinating and and fun and interesting. Where can listeners connect with you to learn more, Jeff, about the books you've written and obviously your podcast? They can listen to that now. And and what's your website address or any social media you want to share? Yeah. So so New England Legends, the podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts and the show's on Amazon Prime if you want to check that out. Um, And then my website's my name, jeffbelanger.com. 
look in the episode description on how to spell that because I know it's not easy. I'm sorry. I'm not Smith or Jones. What can I do? And from there, I've got all my links to my books, which you can get on Amazon or any of the online retailers. And uh, you can find my social media as well. And I'm always happy to, to share this journey with fellow seekers who are looking for weird stories because I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I've always been more comfortable at the fringe. So thanks. Ah, me too. Me too. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Jeff. It was really fun and uh, interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you, JC. It was great talking to you. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Death by Misadventure. To learn more about the topics we covered, check out our website at deathbymisadventure.net for show notes. Also, make sure to subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel at youtube.com slash deathbymisadventurepodcast and follow us on your favorite podcast streaming platform so you never miss another episode. Until next time, stay curious and keep exploring the mysteries of the world. Thanks for listening. <laughs>